Who's got your Bible? So get it out or turn it on, one of the two. Before we read, let's, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. It is your word, and we trust it. And I pray that you give us the grace to trust it as holy and righteous. Father, move upon us in the miracle of this moment. This is the preaching moment. This is what we come here for. We come here to worship you, and all of our worship leads us to this, to hear from you. Move upon us with humility to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Turn to the book of Matthew. So believe it or not, we're actually moving on. <laughs> we are actually moving on. Um, but I've got two passages for us that are our main passages today. Matthew chapter 7 and then John chapter 14. We'll read them. I'll put them up here. And then um, we've got some... Actually, I've got a huge task today, but um, we're just going to try to set the stage today for an even bigger task to come. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 24, Jesus is preaching his sermon on the mount, and he is concluding with this illustration. He says, Everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall. And the floods came, and the winds blew, and that... I'm sorry, I've just got it all. The way... Yes. Okay, let's, let's start over. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. Verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine but does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now in John chapter 14, John 14, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. Here, Jesus is concluding his time on earth with his disciples just before he gets taken off to be crucified. And he's explaining to them that there is a time coming when he must go away from them. He must go to his Father. And he says, Let not your heart be troubled, in verse 1. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. But Thomas is confused. Thomas says to him, Lord, we, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? 
And Jesus says to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So here we have it. There are some big questions that life will present to us. And I mean big grand questions. Like, what is the meaning of life? What does it all mean? Why am I even here? What is my purpose? Anyone ever wondered what is my purpose? What am I supposed to even do with my life? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is there so much suffering in the world? How do I make sense of all this stuff around me? Those are the kinds of big questions that humanity has been trying to answer using humanity's own wisdom since the beginning, since we began to multiply and spread on the earth and subdue the earth. We have always searched for big answers to big questions. We were created to be a part of something bigger, but somewhere along the way, something happened, and we stopped being a part of the bigger part of us. And so we have searched, and we have asked questions, we've used our own wisdom and our own theories to try to answer some of these big questions. Why am I here? What is my purpose? Where do we come from? And boy, have we come up with some doozies. We've come up with some really creative and fanciful ideas. And to be honest with you, some of them are just farce. I mean, they're, they're pretty far out there. I mean, they're crazy. The prevailing standard of what is acceptable and wise for us to believe versus what is foolish and crazy for us to believe is completely bogus. It's a bogus standard. Just take the creation narrative, for instance, the, the question of where do we come from? The thing that is acceptable and true versus the things that are, that are rejected as no, that's absolutely crazy and cannot be, the standard for that is just insane. So in academic circles and social circles today, it is okay and absolutely not crazy for you to believe that all life on earth came from aliens. That somewhere, sometime, some millions or billions of years ago, an alien advanced civilization came to earth and seeded the earth with all of the necessary building blocks for life. (laughs) Or, equally fanciful, you can believe that in spite of absolutely zero evidence, and I mean zero evidence, and in spite of absolutely zero possibility of it ever happening, that life on earth just happened by itself. And we evolved some billions of years ago from an accident, from some protein molecule that accidentally formed some billions of years ago. That's okay. That is not crazy. That does not require any mental leaps of faith in spite of the fact that there is zero evidence for it, in spite of the fact that all odds, I mean literally trillions and trillions and trillions to one odds against it, that doesn't require any leap of faith. It's all guesswork, I'm telling you. 
They'll tell you that all the evidence... No, it's all guesswork. They're making guesses and leaps of faith to support those theories. That's okay to believe. But God, God's off limits. God is. That's crazy talk. To say that there's some kind of intelligent design, that someone, someone put you here, that's, that's crazy. That's insane. He's off limits. The point here is that there are, there are big questions in life. There are big questions. And when we try to go at it on our own, when we try to come up with some, the, the answers with our own wisdom, we come up with some seriously backward explanation. And that has some serious consequences in the world and in our own lives. Amen. It really does. Because those big answers, those big questions, they, they trickle down. It's no wonder that people are so confused about what's right and wrong. It's no wonder that teens are so confused about their identities because they've been fed a bill of lies that says their, their whole person is completely defined by their sexuality. That is a lie. It's no wonder that people can't cope with the issues and trials of life. Why is it that, that celebrities who have all the riches and the successes beyond any of our wildest dreams, they seem to be so self-destructive? Don't they have it all? I mean, every need is met. There's no lack of companions and no lack of comforts. Some of them, they have an entire entourage of people whose whole purpose it is to cater to their every whim, to answer every need, and yet they're miserable. They're so miserable that they destroy their relationships and their lives with their destructive behaviors. Some of them go to the tragic end of taking their own lives because their misery runs that deep. And what's so crazy is, is that in spite of, of that, everyone still idolizes that kind of life. In spite of all the evidence that says that it is destructive for you to have everything that you want, that's what we want. That's how we answer the big questions when we try to go at it on our own. We answer the big questions by saying, you just do what you want. You just do you. Satisfy your basic desires because you're perfect just the way that you are. It's no wonder that violence is called peace and immorality is called pure. It's no wonder that things get turned so upside down and backward to the way that they're supposed to be. When we get the really big answers to the really big questions messed up, they lead to really big lies. And for all of your efforts and all of your education and all of your knowledge and all of your experience, when you try to figure out life's trials and hardships on your own, you come up with some really backward thinking. And you tell yourself some really big lies, some really backward lies, lies that you convince yourself to be the truth. We all do it. Well, I was just born this way, so I don't have to make any changes. I'm perfect just the way that I am. That's my excuse. I was just born this way. My personal favorite, that may be your truth, but that's not my truth. I love that one. Or more tragically, it's my fault that he keeps hitting me. 
It's my fault that mom and dad don't love me. Those are lies. And we believed them. It doesn't really hurt anybody. It's a lie. Surprisingly, those are lies that Christians convince themselves of also. We've gotten the big questions wrong. And so the little questions, we get those wrong too. We get those lies in our head and we start to believe other lies like it doesn't matter how ugly things are on the inside as long as I keep up the appearances on the outside, things are okay. As long as I punch the clock and pay the dues and follow the rules, I'm as good as golden. A little sin is okay. God's not angry at a little sin. Who told you that? What? Of course he is. God hates sin. I mean, he loves you. Oh, he loves you. But he hates sin. His hatred towards sin burns white hot. It burns so hot, he sent his son to be crucified to pave a way out of it. And anyone who does not accept that atonement for it, who does not accept the way out of it, will be punished eternally, thrown out into torment for all time. I say that's pretty angry. In Jeremiah 17, the Bible says that the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's Jeremiah 17, 9. That's some pretty powerful language. Deceitful above all things and desperately sick. When we look to our own wisdom and our own understanding, that's what we come up with. Deceit and sickness. The nature of the solutions that we have that are absent the wisdom and guidance of the righteous God is deceit and sick. And God, in His infinite and holy wisdom, He laid this out for us. He said, you essentially have two paths. In Deuteronomy, He told us you can go down the path of blessings or cursings, life or death, so choose life. That's what He said. And he gave them the commandments and he gave them the law. He gave them answers to these big questions. He gave them worship. And in doing that, he gave them purpose and meaning. And it was beautiful. Oh, it was so beautiful. He gave them a relationship. He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And we will be in covenant together. They were set apart. Not like anything else that had ever existed on the earth. They were in covenant together. But just like what so often happens to us over time, guess what? They turned away. They began to listen to the lies in the world, the wisdom of the world. They began to lean on their own understanding and not the wisdom of God. And that's what brings us to what Jesus said in John chapter 14. He said, I am the way. He said, you know the way to where I'm going. But Thomas was confused. Jesus had been showing them the way his whole life. Thomas had been getting to know the way the whole time he knew Jesus. Jesus is the way. 
Living what Jesus taught. The way is Jesus. The truth is Jesus. That's all of our answers. All of the answers to those big questions are in Him. The life is Jesus. All of our purpose, all of our meaning is in Him. In fact, if you read the book of Acts, you will see that the, the Christian life, the Christian living, the being a disciple of Jesus was simply called the way. Amen. That's what they called it. Keepers of the way. Followers of the way. Jesus came to show us the way. He came to realign our focus back to the first and greatest commandment, which is loving God with everything that we have. If we do that, if we really do that, everything else will fall into place. When you get right down to it, that's, that's what he's setting out to do in his Sermon on the Mount. He's realigning our thinking on what righteousness is, on what holiness is. He's getting back to some bedrock, not the sinking sand, but bedrock so that we can have something solid to stand on when we look for answers to those big questions. Amen. Amen. When Jesus preached this sermon, the situation was such that the religious leaders had enriched themselves from the offerings of the people. The wealthy people had turned their backs on the poor. Health and wealth and prosperity were the symbols of righteous living. If you had those things, then God must be pleased with you. And you almost have to ask, are things really any different today? We just spent the last 15 weeks talking about the Great Commission. Jesus told us to go and make disciples of every nation. He told us to teach them to do all that He had commanded. So in other words, He said, show them the way. Amen. Teach them the way. And the Sermon on the Mount is how Jesus began His formal presentation of the way, the, the Christian way of life. And so He began to formally teach it and put it out there. He said, okay guys, here it is in a package. And this is how He presented it. And so it is so complete in its truth and in its instruction that He concluded His message with what we read this morning in Matthew 7, 24. He said that anyone who does what is in this sermon will be able to stand in times of trouble and they will not fall. If you just do what, what I tell you to do in this, in this message, Jesus said, if you just do these things, you, you'll be okay. You'll be good. That's how complete this is. That's a big promise because the truth in this sermon is so bedrock. It's such bedrock truth that it leads us to true answers for big questions. So we can get the little things right. It would do us well to know the way. To know it and know it well. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend the next, well, however long it takes. Goodness, we spent 15 weeks covering the Great Commission and that was just a few verses. I've got three chapters. So it could take us the rest of the year, I don't know. We're going to take however long it takes, but we're going to work our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to learn. For some, it will be learning for the first time. For some, we're going to reinforce, and for others, we're going to rediscover the way. And some of you have already tuned me out because I've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount and your old hats at this. You think I've got this. You can quote to me the Beatitudes, all the blessed things. And you can quote to me all the times that Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say. But I'm going to tell you to listen up. 
because Jesus began this sermon with blessed are the poor in spirit. And if you knew what that meant, if you really knew what that meant, you wouldn't tune me out. This is not time to shut your ears. There's so much packed in this sermon, and you've heard me say that before. There's a lot packed in this little passage. (laughs) Because there is. There's a lot packed here. Jesus took about 2,500 words. I counted. I didn't. There's a program. You can just plug it in and they, (laughs) they count the words for you. And it probably took him about 30 minutes to preach this passage. It'll take us weeks and maybe months to unpack it. And, you know, we'll never be able to exhaust the depth of the wisdom that's contained in here. Today I want to give you an overview of of the way as it's presented to us by Jesus. And and as as we begin to to work our way through it, if you'll keep your ears open and your eyes open and your hearts open, I, I know I am, but I believe that you also will be amazed at how many ways the gospel as Jesus preaches it is so different than the gospel of the mainstream today and how far afield some of our, our, our brothers and sisters have gone. Jesus, boy, he preached a radical gospel. And he calls us to a radical life. In a lot of ways, it's almost like the mainstream church today is in the same situation as the church that Jesus came into 2,000 years ago where things had gotten so far distorted and worship had gotten so distant and so ugly that you couldn't even recognize the God that they were worshiping. Because even in many churches that bear His name, they're asking those big questions, but they're not looking to Him for answers. They're looking to the world and the worldly wisdom for answers. And so what, what, when they get answers to the questions, they're wrong. Amen. Amen. They're getting the answers wrong. And that leads to a whole lot of trouble. Jesus charged us to make disciples of all nations, but He charged us to teach them His way. Remember one of the great woes that Jesus pronounced against the religious leaders was that when they made converts, they made them twice as much a child of hell as they were. Because they were teaching them false things. They were teaching them lies and false doctrines. They were teaching them the wrong way. And Jesus has called us to teach His way. So it would do us a great good to know the way. As you read through the Sermon on the Mount, I believe you will discover at least five guiding principles that if we will uh, keep to these, these guiding principles, these are of the way of the Christian life, Christian way of living, these will anchor ourselves to these five things. We won't stray very far from the way. Number one. Oh gosh, i got to hurry. The way... Is humble and authentic. Chapter 5 begins with the Beatitudes, the blessed things. If you just do a simple cursory reading of the Beatitudes, it shows at the very least a character of humility. Blessed are the poor, those who mourn, the meek, those who are hungry and are thirsty for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the persecuted, the peacemakers. There's a whole lot more to it than humility, of course, but at the very least, what we could say about the person who walks in these things is that he is humble. There's no such thing as Christian pride. You have national pride, you have cultural pride, you have school pride, you have gay pride, but you do not have Christian pride. 
There's all kinds of pride in the world, but there's no such thing as Christian pride. In fact, James 4, verse 6 tells us that God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. There's no room for proud behavior in the Christian life. That's why it irks me so much to see some of my fellow pastors and some of those prophets out there strutting their stuff the way that they do. There's no, there's no humility in that. And it bothers me. There's a lack of humility and there's a whole lot of pride. And there's no room for pride in the way. The way is humble and the way is authentic. Jesus spent the next several verses teaching the importance of inner purity versus outward appearances. He would say things like, you've heard it said, but then I say. And every time he did that, he would raise the bar. He always turned it from an outward show to an inward uh, matter of the heart. Amen. Amen. In Matthew 23, he came against the religious leaders in a very strong way. He said uh, in verse 25, Matthew 23, 25, He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, for you clean the inside of the cup, uh, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Amen. The way is authentic. It is not surface level. It is not only skin deep. It is transformative from the inner core to the out. Grace does not work from the outside in. It works from the inside out. Number two, the way is passionate for the glory of God in all things to the joy of all people. That's a mouthful, and there's a lot packed in there. Bear with me. In the bulk of chapter 6 and 7, Jesus teaches us how to pray. He teaches us about intimacy with God, how to trust God, and how to treat others. I mean, he just burns through it. When he teaches us how to pray, he begins with, Hallowed be thy name. That's important that he starts there with prayer. Hallowed be thy name. This is not a statement. He's not saying, telling us to say, Our Father, your name is holy. When he says, Hallowed be thy name, literally the Greek translated, that means, Let your name be kept holy. It's not a statement, it's a, it's a request. Let your name be holy. That's because the heart of the Christian is passionate about the pursuit of God's glory. Amen. Let your name be hallowed. Are you passionate about His glory? Are you jealous for God? Do you have a zeal for Him? Being passionate for God's glory also means trusting in Him. Few things bring Him more glory than the faithful trust of His children. I love it when my kids just trust me. Amen. They just trust me. Amen. Oh, Dad will take care of it. And he loves it when we trust him. So at the end of chapter 6, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's why he says that. It brings him glory when we trust him, when we seek him first. Is your burning desire that his name be hallowed? Is it that he be exalted and lifted on high? Are you motivated by that? Because that's what it means to be Christian. This is the way. We are passionate for the glory of God in all things to the joy of all people. When we are jealous and zealous for the glory of God, everyone around us benefits. Amen. 
If indeed we are the faithful servants of God, humbly and joyfully obedient to His Word, then we are all of those blessed things that we read about or that we heard about in the Beatitudes. We are, we are meek and merciful, pure in heart, peace, peacemakers, hungry and thirsty for righteousness, chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. We're not angry with our brother. We settle our disputes lovingly, chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. We honor marriage and we honor women, chapter 5, verses 27 through 31. We are people of integrity, chapter 5, verses 33 through 36. We don't seek revenge, chapter 5, verses 38 through 41. We give to the poor and the needy, chapter 5, verse 42. We love our enemies, boy, isn't that a crazy thought. And we pray for those who persecute us, chapter 5, verse 44. We give freely. Uh, forgiveness and grace because that is what we want and we have received from our Father in heaven. Chapter 6, verse 14. We follow the golden rule to treat others the way that we want to be treated. Chapter 7, verse 12. This is the way and the way is passionate for the glory of God in all things to the joy of all people. Number three, the way is hard. It's not easy. In chapter 7, verse 14, Jesus said, For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. How fascinating is it? I find it just stunning that he says that. He's laying out the course. He's making his case to a multitude of people. This is the way. And then he says, It's not going to be easy. I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. It's not going to be easy. It's hard. And there aren't going to be many people who can do it. Amen. Amen. And then later in his life, he would make a public proclamation that if anyone would be a follower of his, he would have to deny himself, take up his cross to follow him. And then later... Just to show that he's a man of deed and not just a man of words, he would take up his literal cross, he would walk the long road of Calvary, and he would take his last breath and die for a world that despised him. When you take up the call to follow Christ, you assume the heavy burden of the cross, and you embark on a road to follow in those bloody footsteps along Calvary. Amen. Amen. A road to suffering. And there are many dangers along the way, not the least of which is the danger of false teachers and false doctrines and false messiahs. One of the most frightening statements in all of recorded history, I think, was uttered by Jesus in this very sermon when he said in verse 21 of chapter 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? They're pleading their case. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If you believe that the Bible is the word of God and that it is true, and that doesn't rattle you to your bones. There are dangers, and we must be vigilant and keep our minds and hearts on Christ. 
We can't let our guard down lest we be enticed and deceived by the wisdom of this world. The Bible says in the last days that they'll have heaped to themselves teachers because they have itching ears. They want to hear what they want to hear. And it just tickles their ears. The very elect, if it were possible, would be deceived. Number four, the way is sure. Jesus said in this life you will have tribulation. In this world you will have tribulation. It's hard. The way is hard. But take heart. I have overcome the world. The way is sure. We come back to how he concluded his sermon. And I'm grateful for that conclusion because it gives me confidence. And it should give you confidence as well. Chapter 7 verse 24. Jesus said everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And Jesus offers us some bedrock assurances here. This is the way that is solid and sure. Notice that the storms and the trials do come, but you will stand. Because the ground underneath you is solid and unshakable. He contrasts this with those who go their own way, those who are enticed and deceived by the wisdom of the world. In verse 26, he continues, Everyone who hears the words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and, the, and it fell and the great was the fall of it. Two options. Both of them will see storms and trials. It doesn't matter who you are, where you were born or who you were born to because life happens. Something is going to come your way at some point or multiple points and it will be a storm. And Jesus says there are two paths, two ways. One of them is life, one of them is destruction and death. There isn't a third option. The way that he has given us here is the sure and solid way, the way that leads to life. The other path is death, destruction. Proverbs 14, 12 says there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. So here once again, God is presenting us with a choice. Blessings or cursings, life or death. There's a way that leads to life and there's a way that leads to death. And Jesus is telling us, here is the way, guys. The sure and solid way. It's not easy, but it's sure. Finally, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. He preaches this sermon and he lives his life in perfect demonstration. And then in John 14, 6, he pulls back the veil and declares there is no other. He declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's me. Amen. Not me, it's him. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. Amen. Amen. There is no other one. Buddha can't get you there. Muhammad can't get you there. Self-actualization can't get you there. The stars can't do it. Science can't do it. All the wisdom of the world, all the mysticism of the world, nothing else can do it because Jesus said He is the way, not a way, but the way, the one and only way. There's no way around Him. There is no way around Him. You have to go through Him. No way to the Father, but through Him. Acts 4.12 says, And there is... Salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He is the only way. 
And you can't be saved without him. Jesus is the way. It does us well to know the way. So after all that, the way is of the Christian. It is authentic and humble and passionate for the glory of God in all things to the joy of all people. It is hard. But it is sure. It is Jesus. It is worth your time. This is my plug for the next year (laughs) or however long it takes. It is worth your time to be here to work through this together. Because Jesus promised that if you will hear these words of his and do them, and when this trial comes, when the storm comes, you will stand. Because it's coming. You know it's coming. Just look at the climate around you. Let me just put this in here. I'm not a prophet. I don't pretend to be. But we were given signs and seasons. And I was talking with my wife just the other day. I don't, I mean, just look at what's happened in the weather and in the, I mean, just the, just the weather patterns and the, the things that have happened in our nation. Things that we've not seen in ever. Church, this is how God has always spoken to his people. This is how he's warned his people. This is how he's judged his people. With calamities like this. Global sickness and pandemic. National unrest like we've never seen. When have you ever seen our capital breached? When have we ever seen the entire state of Texas frozen? Ever. I mean, I'm just saying, we need to be on our knees asking the Lord, what are you trying to tell us? That's what I'm saying. Because I don't know. But we should be asking him, what are you trying to tell us? Because this, this is the way historically he is, in the scripture, he has either judged or warned his people. And there's a prophet somewhere... <laughs> I'm just telling you, we need to know this. It would do us well to remind ourselves of this. You'll have real true questions for those big answers, the real true answers to those big questions. Why is this happening to me? And how can I face another day like today? Where do I go from here? You have sure and solid ground to stand on. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word and I thank you for this time you've given us together. And I pray that you bless each and every one of us with a seed of faith to receive it, that it be planted in us on fertile ground, Lord. That as we go our separate ways, you keep us safe and that you give us boldness to serve you and strength to do so as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.